Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Pope John Paul II was an artist, an author, an actor, a philosopher, and a theologian. But most important, he was a lover of freedom and liberty. In this episode, Reason Magazine's managing editor, Stephanie Slade, sits down with Eric Cohn to discuss her new article on the Pope who helped bring down communism. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Stephanie Slade is managing editor of Reason. Prior to joining Reason, she worked as a speechwriter, a pollster, and a regular contributor to U.S. News and World Report. In 2013, she was named a finalist for the Bastiat Prize for Journalism. In 2016, she was selected as a Robert Novak Journalism Fellow. She's a proud graduate of the University of Florida, where she earned a BA in economics and political science. The article she has in the most recent issue of Reason Magazine is The Pope Who Helped Bring Down Communism. Stephanie, welcome to Acton Line. Thanks so much for having me back on. So my typical question for people who have uh, books out and come on the podcast is, what's your book about? And I guess the same thing can apply to magazine articles. Um, the title, well, uh, well communicates it, but what is your article about? Well, let me start by saying that this, this um, article is actually part of a special issue, the December issue of Reason Magazine. We did a theme issue commemorating the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union, which is December of this year. And we thought it would, that 30 years was a good point to stop and look back at, at what had happened and what have we learned from it. Um, so as part of that package, I wrote uh, contributed this article about the legacy of Pope St. John Paul II. Um, because what I found was that most of the, I'm Catholic, and most of the Catholics I know of my generation or older are pretty well aware of the role that Pope John Paul II played in helping to um well, helping to bring bring about the end of the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But when I talk to some of my libertarian um, friends and my more secular friends and colleagues, um, Reason is a secular magazine, so some of them had no idea what I was talking about when I, when I mentioned this. And I thought that is a tragedy. I mean, libertarians who believe in, in individual liberty, libertarians were anti-communist. People should be aware of this incredible story about the, the sort of legacy um, and the and the very important role that Pope John Paul II played. So that's what this article is trying to, to remedy. So describe the role that Pope John Paul II played. Yeah. He, so he was elected in 1979 as pope. Um, he's Polish. So he had been living up until that point uh, under, communist, uh, under communism. You know, they, he had been um, a priest and then uh, a bishop. Uh, uh, in Poland during the communist era. Um, and he knew how, how sort of evil this regime was. Um, and he had already been exercising during his time as bishop a sort of cultural, subtle cultural resistance to um, to the regime, uh, in part because the communist regime that was in place at that time was uh, explicitly atheist. It was, it was, it was trying to push 
And the Soviet Union was trying to push what it called this Marxist uh, scientific atheism. It, and it really was not – it was very hostile to religion and to people of faith. Um, well, probably beyond even being atheist, anti-theist. Um, and certainly, as you uh, acknowledge in the article, the, well, the acknowledgement from Gorbachev later on that they engaged in a war on religion. Yeah. I mean it was it was quite bad. Now, it was less bad in Poland in part because the Polish people were so – it was such a, a deeply Catholic country that the attempts that were more successful in Russia and some other parts of the Soviet world to stamp out religion, to, to drive the Catholic Church and people of faith out of the picture, um, it was less successful in Poland. But Pope John Paul II, or, or, or at the time, you know, uh, Bishop Wojtyla, uh, his, his role in sort of keeping the the people connected to their faith during the course of this this sort of um, occupation and, and, and repression um, was part of why it was less successful in Poland. And so the Polish people never quite were willing to to part with their religious uh, attachments during the whole course of the of the Soviet Soviet um, era. Um, and and when Pope John Paul II was elected Pope actually when he when he was elevated to the papacy in 1979, um, this led to just an explosion of um, pride in the people of you know Poland. This was the first Slavic pope. It was our pope, um, and I think that um, it's well understood now that that moment when he was elected and when he a uh, little less than a year later returned to Poland as pope for his first state visit there, and he set the pope set foot on Polish soil. And the crowds came out to, cheer, to to see him and to cheer for him. That that was the beginning of the um, the rise of the solidarity um, opposition to communism that eventually brought down the Soviet Union. I mean, it was the beginning of the end. So I, that's interesting. I, I think you're we we get so much of the credit, especially in the United States, right? Is is given to Ronald Reagan um, for the role that he is head of state really at the uh, leading up to just before the fall of the Soviet Union um, for for doing all of that. But, you know, there's there's been several books um, and, and one I know that you cite in the article as well that look at the the roles to really together of Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II as leading figures in all of that. Um, so what is what do we know about like their whatever cross relationships that there were um, and how that dynamic between the three of them worked and why that was so important for this particular cause? It was important, but I would like to emphasize that um, the Pope was elected again in 1979. This was a year before Reagan was elected president. Mm -hmm. And Reagan, uh, there's a story, this great story of him sitting in his study watching on TV as the um, the the Pope landed in Poland for his first state visit as Pope, um, and the crowds that came out and the just incredible uh, you know outpouring of enthusiasm. And he said, "I have a feeling that religion is going to be the Soviet's Achilles heel." He he saw from across the world before he was even elected president that this was going to be the thing that was going to be the undoing of the Soviet Union. So once then he was elected president, um, he he. Before long, I mean, he he and Pope John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher as well developed a really close working relationship um, because I think they all sensed that there was an opportunity here. Uh, after decades under Soviet rule, this was a crack showing in in this sort of you know, so so he he saw this as an opportunity. So this was not the only strategy that Reagan pursued. He also, of course, w uh, was a big believer in sort of the, the uh, competing on the plane of a military buildup um, and technology and that sort of thing. Um, but 
but he saw that, you know, this this attempt to impose atheism on the people of Poland, it was not flying. And in fact, it was causing a backlash. It was causing restlessness among the Polish people. Mm-hmm. It was causing them to sort of decide that they were going to that they had had enough and that they were going to or start organizing to, to try to to try to um, resist uh, the communist regime. And from there, the the neighboring countries in the Eastern Bloc, uh, were inspired, and there was more foment there. There was more uh, 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 opposition and resistance happening there, and eventually, this would sort of snowball um, in, into in in 1991 December the the lowering of the Soviet flag from above the Kremlin for the last time. So that was that was 30 years ago this year. It, it really uh, it began with the with the outpouring of enthusiasm for John Paul setting foot in, back in Poland after being elected pope um, about 12 years earlier and ended with the end of the Soviet Union. I'm curious what you think of uh, just a kind of character of a certain people that was, you know, we, we find these kinds of stories throughout history of it seems that um, you find the right people in the right places at the right times. You know, I, I have a friend who uh, we talk every once in a while and um, he's particularly kind of pessimistic on the, the modern scene. And I, I share some of his concerns about we look out going on and he continually says to me that his his what he sees as the only maybe not the only but really the i guess the most expeditious way of getting this country out of some of the problems that it's in is like we need we need a lincoln figure we need somebody like that now um, just the way that you needed somebody like Lincoln at the time that Lincoln came along and i i guess my point to him is always that you know we have, at least in this country, and I think here's another example of it too, um, the circumstances bringing the right people to the fore. I mean, this is, there was nothing foreordained about those three individuals and particularly about John Paul II being the one who would be in that position at that time with a particular connection to a particular people under Soviet oppression that would be able to snowball a movement like this. You know, you don't, you could call it divine providence. You know, we certainly, it could have worked out differently. And I think uh, in the way that we think about circumstances right now, like we think that there's just this, well, there's even the Marxist idea that there is a capital H history that we're all marching towards. Um, But we also could see that there's somebody in the right place at the right time. There seems to be, at least to me, something miraculous about that. Yeah. And I would never want to um, discount the incredible importance of personal agency. Um, And if they if any of these figures had not acted on the opportunity that they had to make a difference, you know, we wouldn't have ended up where we did. Uh, At the same time, Reagan believed in in what he called the DP, the divine plan. Um, He believed that he and, and Pope John Paul II were a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, It's an interesting, I I don't really emphasize this much in the article, but um, they were both shot in um, within a matter of a few weeks or maybe a couple of months of each other, mm-hmm. but attempted assassinations of both Reagan and, and the Pope. Um, and the Pope's assassin, we know, was, in fact, in the employ of the Bulgarian communist government. It was the communist government who saw the Pope as such a threat that they, uh, they hired an assassin to try to take him out. He was shot twice. He very nearly died, and, but he survived. Um, and just a few weeks earlier, something similar had happened um, to Reagan, although, although his was just a sort of uh, crazy mm-hmm. person who had shot him. But the two of them believed, they both independently believed that, that they had been saved for a reason and that the purpose that they were, that they were in these positions of power um, for and the, the purpose for which they had been saved was 
to help to bring about the end of communism. So they really did believe in this providence in a, in a very profound way. And that was, I think, part of why they, they felt such a bond um, to each other and were willing to work cl- so closely together to to try to move along this project. And, and I didn't get into the details. Your, your last question was about what did, what did Reagan and what did they actually do? Well, they provided a, a covert um, material support for the opposition movement in Poland, which was known as Solidarity. Um, so, so Solidarity emerged in response to Pope, the Pope's first visit back to Poland. Um, it was a trade union. It was resistant to the communist uh, system. It was asking for liberalization, democratization. They wanted wor- the workers wanted rights that they didn't have under communism, and so they started organizing and they started protesting and they started, um, you know, sending sending uh, underground newsletters around. And they this this movement within a matter of like a less than a year exploded to like ten million people were a member of the Solidarity Trade Trade uh, Union. Um, and when the when the communists when the Soviets cracked down on it, um, Reagan and the Pope and Thatcher and and a lot of civil society organizations too, including the AFL-CIO, the the American um, uh, sort of labor movement, interestingly, was a part of this as well, provided material. They snuck material support in to keep this labor union, this this trade this trade union, and the um, which was the locus of the opposition to communism, going uh, when it when the Soviets were trying to stamp it out. So this is what they did that was like sort of concrete um, help provided to. Um, keep the opposition going and eventually have them, you know, ensure that they would outlast actually the Soviets, which they did. Yeah. I just realized that I've been saying uh, 79, but I think it was actually 78 when he was elected, 79 when his first visit um, occurred. Mm -hmm. So sorry, sorry for the confusion there. I think they also, we'd say certainly from the Pope and, and Reagan and Thatcher as well, they also thought differently about it. I mean, for so long, so many people in those positions of power and authority um, and and responsibility. The thought was about, you know, how do we manage to coexist in this world with this regime? And it was a difference in thinking. I mean, you, you really prior to, you know, you'd say, you know, 78, 79, leading up to the 1980 election here in the United States. You have already Margaret Thatcher there in the United Kingdom. You have John Paul II becoming Pope in 79. To have people thinking about, you know, they're there to end communism, that they're they're there to help bring it down. That's just a remarkable change in the way that they thought about it as opposed to the way that predecessors, their predecessors had thought about what do we do about this problem? Absolutely. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite quotes from Reagan, actually, which is not something he said in one of his great speeches, like, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Um, he was in a meeting with one of his aides. Again, I think this was before he was elected president. And this aide asked, you know, what would your strategy, if, if you're elected, what would your strategy on, on communism be? You know, what, what, is your, what is your goal? And he said, this is my goal. We win, they lose. And this was just like a sort of I mean, it was like a revolutionary way of approaching the Cold War because, as you say, at that time, virtually everybody thought that the Soviet Union was much stronger, in a much stronger position than, it, than we now, in retrospect, know it actually was. Um, we thought that they were going to last forever, that they were probably, you know, they're doing military exercises on the borders, threatening to invade their neighboring countries. There's obviously the threat of nuclear holocaust hanging over everything, of, nu- of nuclear war mm-hmm. that could, you know, annihilate the, the human race. There was a lot of fear and there was a, a, a misperception that the Soviet Union was that, – that, that it was invincible, right? And that if anything, we were in the weaker position um, compared to them. Uh, 
Reagan, in a real in a real way, he saw through that, uh, and, and I think I think the Pope did as well. He he saw the weaknesses of this sort of rigid top down system because he, because he had lived in Poland underneath it. He he had very up close and personal experience with it, and he saw how poorly it did at meeting the people's needs and um, you know material needs and spiritual needs as well, and saw what an opportunity that presented to. Um, to harness, you know, the people on the ground to resist and 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 to to eventually bring down this menace. I'm also struck by, you know, having a an important religious figure like the Pope. It, it allows, and I think they brought back into the vocabulary, and it seems to me also that we've kind of, it's something we've excised from our vocabulary in current circumstances, the willingness to identify things for what they are, right? To say that there is good and evil in the world and to identify it as such. And we, you know, prior to that, in the same way that we talked about coexisting, in the same way now that we talk about a lot of different systems as just being different, right? That nothing is better or worse than another. It's just a different way of doing it. You have obviously Reagan calling it an evil empire, but certainly somebody who is, you know, the the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of the Catholic Church, can speak about those things in a way that was probably necessary to create the circumstances that led to the end of it. That's exactly right. And when he would visit Poland, um, he would give these speeches where he would tap dance right up to the edge of calling on people to uh, to do something about this. I mean, <clears throat> he, he said at one point, um, there is no justice if there's no independent Poland on the map, which was an almost direct reference to the sort of Soviet uh, practically the, the sort of practical occupation, the fact that Moscow was dictating to the communist government in Poland how, how it should, you know, how the country should be run. Um, he talked about the incredible importance of um, of faith in, in culture, which was a an almost direct rebuke to the sort of imposition of atheism. Um, he, he recognized the problem and he was um, actually a lot more um, he, he he demonstrated a lot more courage in terms of uh, speaking openly about it, even when he was on the ground, you know, during during these visits. He, he made three, uh, I believe it was three visits to Poland during the 10 years between when he was elected and when, when um, Poland gained its independence finally. And and he would just he just went far beyond what even some of the other um, Catholic leaders were willing to do because they were trying to keep the peace. I mean that was a, mm-hmm. it was an understandable impulse. We want to keep the peace. We want to avoid this nuclear war. Um, he was not afraid to to sort of call it like he saw it, and and just 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 as Reagan was when he you know made that famous evil empire speech. And by the way, in the same issue of the magazine, we have a great article from Kathy Young, who. Um, she was born in Soviet Russia. She her family left, and, and she says yes, it was an evil empire, and it's a great piece that I would highly recommend everybody check out as well. I'm curious what you think about modern times. Um, so we there are some people wanting to make a comparison. Um, you know, we had this Cold War between us and the Soviet unions, uh, really from the end of the the Second World War until uh, 1991 when it collapses. We have it's not you know it. It's not the exact same circumstance between us and China now, uh, but there are people wanting to make that comparison that we're in some kind of a cold war with China. And I'm also curious what you think of if we're lacking that kind of courage now from people in positions like 
you know, Pope John Paul II was in at that time to say, call things what they really are, right? So we here at the Acton Institute, we're working on a documentary on Jimmy Lai, who's the pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong, who is a, uh, a Catholic. Um, and we don't, I, I just can only observe, you know, we don't hear much about what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in China from our current pope. And I'm wondering if we, you know, I think this filters down to um, people within the Catholic Church and people just in general. Is there a loss of courage to call things what they are and to say it in no uncertain terms? I think there are definitely parallels with China. In fact, increasingly, as when China comes up in conversation, I am reminded of that quote I mentioned a moment ago from Reagan, the we win, they lose. That's my that's my plan. Um, I think that China is probably a lot weaker in terms of its um, in, ter- in terms of its sort of uh, economic and geopolitical status than we know. Just like we did not re- – most people did not realize that the Soviet Union was as weak as it was until the moment that it collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we have faith in our system uh, of, of free markets and exchange and, and you know, free society, that we should be more optimistic about the sort of competition that we're currently in with China, um, about whether – whether they they have you know the enduring power that a lot of people seem to seem to assume that like they're the next century is going to be the Chinese century. Well, I'm not convinced of that. Um, I'm not convinced of that for the same reason that you know Reagan wasn't convinced that the Soviet Union union would last. Um, so I think we should not be afraid to call out human rights, you know, injustices and human rights abuses, and and to talk about those things um, for fear that you know the our ability to coexist with China in the future you know, would be impaired or something. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be willing to talk about these things. I, I, I think there's a real moral imperative there. Um, and, but, but I think also we should be optimistic. We, ha- we should have more faith in our system compared to theirs. You know, if we believe that, again, that, that prices matter and that, you know, that sort of all of the things that we, that we tend that we as Americans tend to believe about the importance of unleashing the creativity of free people um, and that that produces a more um, dynamic and, and enduring system, then we should there should be really no um no doubt in our minds that the chinese system as which is in many ways the complete opposite of that could possibly outlast us or be superior or we i think we have the superior system and we just we've lost a little bit of faith in that so that nowadays a lot of people on both the left and the right seem to think that the correct um answer to China is to make our system more like theirs, more top-down control, more subsidies, more, you know, crackdown, you know, more trade restrictions. Oh, Tom Friedman in the New York Times wondering if what, what it would be like if we could be China for a day. Yeah. Well, it's, I, 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 we were talking about this on one of our podcasts recently, too, that it's the, it, it's the remarkable story of when you look at the progress that China has made in terms of bringing people out of poverty um, improving standards of living there while still seeding that, you know, there's more economic freedom there, but there is still not an increase in political and personal freedom in that sense. Uh, it was only after they killed tens of millions of people in an attempt to achieve um, communist perfection. And as a last resort, they embrace some semblance of market liberalization and you have people that will look at it like the Tom Friedmans of the world and say, by God, it must be the totalitarianism. So there's, there, you know, there's clearly a confusion there. But I'm, I'm, I often th- I think about this uh, every once in a while is you, you – uh, I, I enjoy 
Cold War movies, often spy stories, right? And you find that people who were working as spies for the Soviet Union did so because they believed in that system. And what I think is interesting vis-a-vis China is you don't see that as much of people, you know, spying for China because they believe in the system. They do it because China's paying them. And I think there, even in that, it, that would seem to suggest to me a certain weakness to the system. They don't even inspire the true believers that the Soviet Union did, which ended up collapsing. Um, they're essentially – it's all financially motivated. You see that in the way the NBA reacted, um, the way that people with financial interest in there – and certainly that's a different problem and a big problem in and of itself, but it's a different problem. I just think we need to recover – our belief in our system in a way that some people I think have lost or have have become they've they're wavering on um, which is not to say that I think that we need to be doing more spying right but I think that like there's just like, there's a crisis of confidence right now in in whether a free society and you know is is a better is a better way of life and and that's tragedy because it is it is absolutely a better way of life both in you know sort of in and of itself a free society is a better society and in terms of the sort of uh you know the, the follow-on consequences the material flourishing and, and and abundance that follow from having a free society well let's I think this would be a good opportunity to turn to another area that you've spent a lot of time covering which is the changes on the political right in the United States because you in you know probably a couple decades ago you would normally expect that the people that who are the biggest boosters of you know our system if you're breaking it down to the left and the right in America the ones who are always the first and foremost there defending our system and you know American exceptionalism was on the right, and you're seeing less of that now. So uh, we we talked earlier. I know you didn't attend the National Conservative Conference this year, but you went to the one in uh, D.C. a couple years ago. Because you've been following this so closely and writing about it, I'm curious what your thoughts on are on that project and where it's at right now. You know, two years after that first conference and a few years after we even started talking about something called national conservatism or a post-liberal right or any of the other terms that uh, are thrown into this uh, big mix. Yeah, my sense is that the national conservative conservative movement um, doesn't quite know what it's up to right now. Um, so – and and I I'll say you know I've been arguing for a long time that actually they were misdiagnosing something. So basically, what happened is you have this shocking victory of Donald Trump in 2016. People want to know how did this happen? We nobody saw this coming. Why why was there such incredible overwhelming support for Trump? Um, and the the theory uh, out of which the National Conservative Conference and movement emerged was, well, it was economic dissatisfaction. It was, you know, we don't build things in this country anymore. And, you know, the jobs are drying up in small towns. And we we need more protectionism. We need more government subsidies to try to turn this around to help American businesses and industry compete with foreign competition. If that means less immigrants, less trade, you know, so be it. If it means a bigger government that spends more money, so be it. Um, that was the that was the, the thesis that was the hypothesis um, that was put forward um, to explain how we ended up with Trump. I think that is almost completely wrong. Um, so I think if you look at the polling data, um, there was a, a great poll done by the uh, EPPC, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, in January of this year. They surveyed people who had voted for Trump in 2020 and looked at what they cared about and what they were motivated by, um, and what they found was it was. Primarily not economics at all. It was cultural issues. It was a sense of 
being under assault in our culture. So people of faith, especially Christians, people who are more right of center politically, white people, you know, they, that, that our culture tells all these people that they are, uh, that they are evil and bigoted, um, that, that there, are, there are attempts on the left to pass laws that would force, you know, Christian bakers to make cakes for gay weddings against their will, um, that would make Catholic nuns pay for birth control against their will. Um, they feel like the mainstream media is in the bag for the Democratic Party. So there was really cultural dissatisfaction and not economic dissatisfaction. Um, and so I think that the national conservative movement really misdiagnosed the moment that it was trying to step in and provide answers for. And as a result of that, I think you're seeing them now have to reevaluate a couple, couple, three years later, reevaluate with this most recent conference what they're all about and, and step back and maybe – um, pivot towards towards these more cultural issues. Now, I don't think they necessarily have good answers on the cultural issues. I think we, there, we have some pretty big disagreements on those as well. Um, but I do. I, I'm not at all surprised to see to see that pivot because um, that is what you know. My understanding uh, of the sort of survey research would have you know has been suggesting all along. Well, that we were talking about this earlier too. That one of the complications of you, you, I think we agree on some similar diagnoses of the problems within our culture and the solution that's being offered up from the national conservative side is to say we can make you know law and policy changes that will address these problems. Um, and I agree with you from our conversation earlier that they're cultural problems um, and the problem with trying to solve them with political solutions, which you know, there's a political system for a reason is to try to you know, meet out some of the decision making that needs to happen in a, a country like this. Uh, but you, know, you, you will have one, you know, just because you ban something doesn't mean that it goes away. We should learn that lesson from prohibition, um, from the war on drugs. Uh, just because you pass a law doesn't mean that the law is going to do what it says on paper. And it will produce unintended consequences, some of which are foreseeable, some of which are not foreseeable. But I think that one of the challenges for you know, making the argument that these are cultural problems and we need to fix them culturally is it's hard to describe what that looks like. Um, I'm curious, any thoughts you have on like how how do you approach making that argument to say the political solutions not only won't work – um, but there could very well also make things worse. And I think the the argument you get back in is that you're in favor of doing nothing, but it's often hard to describe, you know, I'm not in favor of doing nothing. It's hard to describe what the something is that you know, you'd be in favor of doing. Yeah, it helps, I think, to remember that life is not politics. You know, life is much bigger than politics. So when there is a problem, one thing you could do is you could pass a law and hope that the law will, will fix it. Um, I think in, for almost all of our problems these days, um, it, they, are, they are ultimately cultural and passing a law is akin to thinking that you can wave a ma magic wand. It's magical thinking. You're not going to pass a law and fix some of the problems that are the sort of deep dysfunctions in our, in our culture. Um, but fortunately, life is bigger than politics. Life is bigger than government. Um, there are many ways to go about trying to solve problems or address problems, make things better, um, that, that go way beyond sort of bringing, calling in the coercive power of the state. So individuals, families, communities, civil society, institutions, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a long tradition in Christianity of assuming that these are the institutions that should be on the front lines of trying to solve problems. Um, and so I think we, we have sort of forgotten that. We, and I, part of this is because of the legacy, I think, of the New Deal and of, of the sort of uh, uh, 
you know, the, the progressive idea that when there's when there's a problem, the federal government will solve it. it, it that it the has, state can be there to love you too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it has trained us to be more apathetic than we would otherwise be. To assume that the problem is being solved by someone else, I'm paying my taxes, that's all, I'm ex- is, that's all that's expected of me. Well, no, that's never the way it was supposed to be at all. Most of these problems cannot be solved by the federal government. Um, and we are supposed to be on the front lines. And, and so in many ways, it's unfortunate that the, the state has crowded out these alternative, you know, voluntary and private solutions or, uh, or you know, entities that could try to, to come up with solutions. Um, it's hard to compete against the state. That's what crowding out means. I think we need to be willing to do it anyway. And, yeah, it's hard. There's not super straightforward uh, answers on how do you um, – when, when there is a crisis, sort of spiritual crisis, a lack of a sense of meaning and belonging in many places among many people in our sort of, um, you know, highly alienated world um, – there's not a super straightforward answer for how you go about fixing that because I don't think it can be done on scale. I think it is a sort of person-to-person, you know, um, it's, a, it's a person-to-person a- answer. That's, that's the only way this works. Uh, and it has to be done by you – know, there's no answer. There's no other – It's your, your options are wave a magic wand and hope that it will solve it or, you know, buckle down and get ready to do the hard work of, like, connecting with the people around you and looking for solutions that way. And those are your answers. I, I recognize that it doesn't seem very satisfying to a lot of people, um, but that, I think, really gets at the the really the core of the problem with our culture, which is that we have forgotten the way we are supposed to be connected to each other and interact with each other. Yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking now of the the piece that Yuval Levin had in uh, the dispatch um, and we'll we'll put a link to that in in the show notes. But that the and we're gonna have you all on the on the podcast uh, coming up soon uh, to talk about that piece. But it, what's interesting to me in there is that yeah, what what we're seeing is that a lot of these problems come from you know, we we often think the problems that come in culture come from people behaving recklessly, right? Um, and that what he pointed out in that piece, looking at a study from some colleagues of his at AEI, is that people are sitting on the sidelines, that they are not engaging, they're not diving into life much at all. Um, so you you get some of the good benefit stuff that like things that we would point to that we would that we would like, like a falling divorce rate and um, fewer abortions happening. Uh, but what he points out for context there is that, you know, fewer people are getting divorced because fewer people are getting married. Um, fewer people are getting pregnant, which is one of the reasons why there are fewer abortions. Um, to say you can certainly be happy about those results, but you can also identify that there is um, another pathology there uh, that is preventing people from being in engaged in their own lives. And I think you – my thought when I was reading that piece is that I think you can connect this as well. Um, I, it made me think about the pandemic and the way that we are just absolutely terrible at assessing risk. And so much of the dominating thought of it was to avoid risk at all cost. And you just can't do that in life. You can't avoid it at all costs. There are certain things that it makes sense to try to mitigate your risk there. But at some point, you you know – Living life is is a risky business and you have to, as you said, kind of get in there, get your hands dirty and actually live if you're going to try to fix some of these cultural problems that may be coming as much from our inaction as uh, as bad actions. Right, right. And I, I, I like I said a moment ago, I I recognize that it's it, it can seem it's, it could be frustrating to say like, well, what are you doing to solve this problem? Um, when there are so there are so many ways in which current policy um, and and you know certain current ways that 
state power is exercised actually makes it much more difficult for private solutions to bubble up and to, for us to experiment and try, the, try out these different things. I mean, I mean, just like Catholic hospitals, for example, are facing an unending barrage of lawsuits from, uh, for example, the ACLU trying to essentially put them out of business or force them to, you know, provide abortion services and things like that. Um, this is a private, you know, a, a sort of uh, this is an exercise of charity on the part of the Catholic Church to provide health care services in communities that might not otherwise have access to them, to serve the poorest among us. Um, also, by the way, you know, creating jobs because they're operating a hospital, which is a source of many jobs in many communities. And rather than celebrating and applauding, you know, the church's um, willingness to get in there and get their hands dirty in this way that we're talking about, um, the ACLU and many activists on the left have said we would rather we, – we will force you to bend to our will or not exist at all, um, and we'll use the power of the state to do that. This is a problem. I mean, it, it makes it much harder for people to be charitable and, and to, to sort of have the – um, the motivation to 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 get in there and do what needs doing, um, and so I think in terms of talking about public policy, the number one thing that we should be talking about, I think, is not new ways to seize power of the state and wield it to get what we want coercively, but rather how can we figure out how to roll back these many ways in which bad policy is stymieing people from being able to and making it much harder, making the the it much more uphill battle for people to be involved and and to and to try out and you know experiment with each other and come together and experiment and be in and um you know just exercise their their human creativity to try to help each other in the ways that that they would otherwise be doing with the state warrant standing in their way i want to come back to your uh, article for a final question here so um understanding the the context in which uh Pope John Paul II was operating there at, you know, really what we assume is the height of the Soviet Union, but actually the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, um, but nonetheless helped along by things that he chose to do. Looking at our present times, what's the biggest lesson that you think we can learn from him and from what we know about the role that he played in such a momentous and incredible event in world history? Yeah, I think... Again, the way that his strategy for combating communism is often remembered is it was it was cultural resistance. Um, it was not it was decidedly nonviolent. He was insistent, and the solidarity movement that rose up, sort of inspired by him, um, was 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 just absolutely committed to nonviolent resistance, resistance at the level of the culture, um, and that's a thing that I think is a it should be a, an inspiring model for us as. As it is absolutely true that we do face threats in the world, uh, and as people of faith are in many ways, um, you know, not wrong to feel that they're that they are under assault um, from the left and sometimes from the state, um, we still have a choice about whether to respond at the level of uh, persuasion and conversion and and meeting people where they are and trying to change hearts and minds um, and behaving in a nonviolent way, or if we're going to reach for power for the sake of power in order to impose our way of life on other people and destroy those who disagree with us. Like, that is a choice that we will always get to make. And I think we need to keep um, the lesson, the, the, the story of JP2 in our mind as we are making the, that choice, you know, going forward. You know, Stephanie, you're here in uh, our offices because you were at our annual dinner last night for the retirement of um, and moving to President Emeritus of, of 
our co-founder, Father Robert Sirico, and what you were just saying, they reminded me of something he said in his speech last night. They were always free to propose things to others, not to impose on others. I think that's a good message to leave it there. Stephanie Slade is managing editor at Reason. Her article that we've been discussing today in the most recent uh, edition of Reason magazine, the a special edition titled The Ashes of the Evil Empire. Her article is The Pope Who Helped Bring Down Communism. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.